Well, last week we began our short series on the book of Jude, and the topic, as you can tell, is contending for the faith. In other words, we as Christians, we're charged with guarding the truth of God's word and not letting anyone teach us or you anything different. Now, it doesn't mean we don't study other topics, we don't become learned in the things of the world, but we study them all in the light of God's word. You know, a lot of people think that Christian is anti-science. But actually, the more we advance in science, the more that we see the science and, and Christianity kind of dovetail. We're watching the video series for the teens upstairs. And again, it's, it's, I'm listening to it going, whew, some of it's over my head, you know. And so I can imagine what they're going through. But they're talking about DNA and, and proteins and how all these things, what the chances are that it happens by accident. And it's like zip no chance of happening by accident. So we want to know that science kind of dovetails with Christianity. Um, it's okay to study other things as long as we know the word, you know, God's word is still the final authority. But we're studying what Jude's talking about is false teaching in a church setting. And remember, he's writing to Christians, and a lot of these are new Christians, and what he's trying to prevent, and, and seemingly some people have slipped into that church with new Christians, and they're beginning to teach things that aren't really biblical. Jude 4, we said last week, it says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. Now, it may not even be the preacher. It may not be the deacons. It, it could be. But it's probably someone who has a position of authority, and, and others are looking to them because either they're, they're very articulate, or they sound smart, or they, they come across as a leader, and people are listening to them. And he's telling this church that you need to be careful of what is being taught. And that means as a church, pastor and the board and, and the church has to be very cognizant of what is being taught. We need to be aware of what's being taught, which means you all have to know the Bible as well so you can determine whether what I'm saying is true or not. Now, whether it's a Sunday school class, a home Bible study, or as much as possible, we want to make sure that everything we're, that we're teaching in, in any aspect of church is, is biblical. We had a couple of instances in our old church. I, when I first came on staff there, I, the pastor asked me to go to a Sunday school class to kind of be an assistant and to listen. And I went to the class, and it was good. He was a great guy, friend of mine. But I found out that he was teaching kind of a name it and claim it stuff. It was, you know, it was a larger church, so it's kind of hard to keep tabs on everything being taught. And so it was kind of a name it and claim it. And we had to kind of say, hey, John, you can't be teaching that kind of stuff. We don't, we don't do the name it and claim it here. And so he had to back off, and he was good with that. And, you know, it, it just, you've got to be careful of what's being taught. We had another group. It was kind of like a Christian 12-step. And what we did is it, would, it was a lay person who was in the group and trying to talk to people who are going through different situations, you know, drug abuse, whatever. And they're Christians. And I went for the first class, and uh, everyone sat around talking about all their situations. And that's, you know, that's good. Second time I went, same thing happened. Everyone's just talking about their situations. No, no teaching, no biblical, ad, you know, admonishment to that. Third time I went, same thing. And I said to the pastor, I said, you know, they're, they're talking, but they're not trying to solve anything. And so I went in the next week, and I said, I'm going to teach and I said, well, the goal of this class is to apply biblical principles to each of your situations, whatever they might be. We want to eventually end this class. It's going to come to an end. 
God's going to resolve it. God's going to heal you. God's going to deliver you. At some point, we're going to say, okay, I'm healed. And I'm done with this class. Next week, I went back to teach it. Nobody was there. What I found out is people like talking about their issues, but not really trying to apply what the Bible says to their issues. It's a, it's a thing that, you know, a person who has any kind of a bad habit, they have to want to stop the bad habit before God can really do it. If they don't want to stop it, no matter what you tell them, they're not going to do it because they don't, they don't feel it's a problem or they don't want to stop it. So we want to make sure that everything that's being taught is biblical with a biblical conclusion to it. And that's why we don't allow anyone just to teach. We want to make sure that what they're teaching is, is biblical. And if we find out they're not teaching biblical stuff, we kind of don't let them teach anymore. Because it's not only them that's going to be judged. I'm going to be judged because I'm letting it happen. So Jude goes on in verse 5. He says, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Now he's about to give three. He likes doing in threes, and we're going to find out how he deals in threes a couple times. He gives three examples of what happens in situations that are not handled correctly. And he prefaces it by saying, I know you've heard this before. Now, how many have been in church services where you hear a sermon again? I mean, the Bible's been around 2,000 years for Christianity. Nobody's preaching anything new. <laughs> Nothing I say is anything that somebody hasn't preached before. <laughs> so you're going to hear repetition in sermons. And you're going to come and say, you know what? I've heard that before. And Jude's already saying, look, I know you've heard this before, but I'm going to tell you again. Second Peter does the same thing. Second Peter 1.12 says, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you have. And if you read Second Peter and, and Jude, they're almost the same book. They're addressing the same situations to two different groups of people. People who have let false teaching come into the church, and both those books are warning them against that. So if you feel like you've heard a sermon before, and you've said to yourself, you know, I already know this. You probably do. But God keeps ministering to you, keeps telling you. What happens when you become overly familiar with the story? What's the phrase? Familiarity breeds contempt. A definition of that means the phrase familiarity breeds contempt means when you have a lot of knowledge about a subject, you tend to lose respect for that subject. Now, I'm not an electrician, but I do a little bit of electrical work. I'm not afraid of it, but I have a very healthy respect for it. If you get to the point where you just, you don't care, you're going to get zapped. When you lose respect for something because you think you know it, it's going to hurt you. And when you get to the point where you think, man, I know this inside and out, you're going to lose respect for it. And it's not going to mean as much to you anymore. We must never get to the point where we think we know everything about the Bible so well that we can't learn something new from it or we lose respect for it. It doesn't mean that every new thing that's being taught is from God, right? And which means we should have our eyes and ears open, our spiritual discernment going on for things that are being taught. In other words, we should always be teachable to what God's word says, but de discerning 
in what we're being taught. You ever read a book, a Christian book, and you read a paragraph and it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to jive. I don't really you know, agree with what that says. Well, that's your discernment. That's something that's being taught that's, you know what, it's, it's clicking off the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, that's not quite true. So he starts our verse five, he says, I want you, you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt. And this is the first of the three examples of God's judgment, and he starts with Exodus. The people at that time, they experienced deliverance from Egypt, they deliverance from Pharaoh, power over Pharaoh, splitting of the Red Sea, keeping them in the desert, and even though they experienced all these things, God said, I need you to trust me in it one more time. What happened? They didn't. They didn't trust him. God said, basically, here's the promised land. I, I've given you everything up to this point. I've delivered you. I've parted the Red Sea. There's the promised land. Go take it. If you fight for it, I'm going to give it to you. And what happens? They become cowards. Numbers 13, 31 says, but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. They even wanted to organize and go back to Egypt. Numbers 14, 40 says, they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, we look at that as Christians and think, these guys are crazy. What, what were they thinking? Now, two things. They didn't have the Holy Spirit to quicken them. And the second thing is, how often do we kind of want to do that? Whoa. You start something, I'm sorry, I'm trying not to knock anything over here. <laughs> you start something and it doesn't go well at first and you say, well, I'm, I'm just gonna quit, I'm, not, I'm gonna go back to not doing anything. We sometimes quit what God calls us to because it doesn't go the, perfectly the way we think it should go. Or God calls you to do something and you, you kinda sense it's God's call but you think you're not equipped to do it. Israelites, they didn't think they were equipped to do it and physically, they weren't. But had they trusted God, they would have been able. What's the phrase? Doesn't, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. God calls you to do something. More than likely, you're not going to feel that you're equipped to do it. Every prophet, none of them felt like they were equipped. Paul, you know, I'm not a great speaker. Peter, he denied Christ. Nobody thinks they're a good fit but God calls them and as soon as God you step into that that shoe the anointing comes and you are successful and it doesn't mean it doesn't it happens instantly at the very first time the very first time you may teach something or do something for God it may not go great it doesn't mean you're not called to do it Israelites these guys weren't going to lay down they had a fight to get the property God says, you fight for it, I'm going to give it to you. And in that process, probably some Israelites would have died in the, in the battle. But they would have gotten the land. When God calls you, it may not go great at the very first time. But you know you're going to be successful because God has called you to do it and he's going to equip you to do it. Now remember, Jude's addressing Christians. He's warning them about false teachers and what's going to happen to them if you listen to these false teachers. Israel rebelled against God, and what happened? They all died before they reached the promised land, right? They did not make it to where God promised they were going to be. Verse 5 continues. 
He delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Now, in this instance, God did not wipe them out at once. And there's instances in the Bible where God says, okay, like Korah, you're done. Right now, you're all done. But these guys, he let them live for 40 years. And so they lived for 40 years in their disobedience, thinking that, you know what, I might make that promise ain't after all. But they died never getting there. And I thought about that. Unbelievers, false teachers might live their whole lives thinking that they're going to make the promised land when they die. But they're never going to make it because of their unbelief and disobedience. And he's telling these folks, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't correct this false teaching, if you don't nip it in the bud right now. They're going to lead you astray and them and you are going to not make it to heaven when you die. His next example, verse 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. Jude's saying, okay, if Israel's not enough proof, Egypt's not enough proof, here's another example of God's judgment. Now, a couple of things with this. I'm not going to go off on a tangent real, a little bit. I'm not going to get in too deep. We know that a third of the angels fell with the devil, right? Isaiah 14, 12 says, talking about Satan, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. And then later in Revelation, verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 3 says, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon, again, the devil, and seven head, with, with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns in his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. So this is why we get the one-third of the angels. So the third of the angels fell with the devil, and that leaves two-thirds of the angels on our side, right? So we got pretty good odds, two to one, right? Hebrews 1.14 says, Are not all angels, and these are the good ones, ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So we have two-thirds helping us, one-third fighting us, all right? But here we see that God chained up some of that one-third. So we actually have a little bit better ratio than two to one. Second Peter 2, 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in the gloomy, gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. And these are some of the one-third that fell, but they're not on earth wreaking havoc. So there's less than a third of the angels wreaking havoc on us. However, even though it's a th less than a third, it's still a substantial number. Hebrews 12.22 says, we have, You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. New American Standard uses the word myriad of angels. Revelation 5.11 says, And I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. So that's like innumerable number. So even though we have two to one or better than two to one ratio, we still have... A lot of enemies out there trying to attack us. That's why we need to keep our guard up and know Scripture. So 2 Peter and Jude are both the same topic, written to different people. And false teaching and rebellion must have been prevalent back then as it is today. And the point of this verse is Jews reminded people that God even threw some of the rebellious angels into the pit. And these were angels that he created 
that God had said, okay, you don't obey me, into the pit you go. And what's the Bible say about hell? It was created for the devil and his angels. So that's their next stop. And if he did this for the angels, don't think that we're not immune to that. The last example he gives in verse 7 says, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Now the phrase gave themselves up literally means gave themselves over to the pursuit of lust. In other words, to indulge in excessive immorality. This is not occasional immorality. This is not a slip. This is not... You know, this is a lifestyle committed, totally committed to this perversion. And we see that today. People are just committed, committed lifestyle of sin. Both Second Peter and Jude tell us that God made these cities as an example to warn people that God does judge sin. So now we have the three categories of sin. The first one is unbelief. Not believing God to take Canaan. The second one is rebellion against authority. Angels rebelled against God. And the last one is sexual immorality. Now why does Jude point these these three particular ones out? Because these are the major characteristics of those who are teaching false doctrine. The first one is they don't believe God's word. Unbelief, they don't believe what God's word actually says or they take it out of context or they misinterpret what it says. The second thing is they rebel against that authority. If they take something out of context, they are rebelling against the authority of God's word. God's word is, is final. And they're rebelling against that. They don't believe it. And the third is they use their position to justify sexual immorality. In other words, they say that lifestyle is okay. It's okay for God. Each of these characteristics will warrant God's judgment. And these guys who are teaching this stuff now have all three of them. What do we see today with people who are are well-known, not Christian, but claiming to be Christian? They don't believe God's word, or they'll tell themselves, you know what? It doesn't really mean that. And... All roads lead to heaven. Verse 8 goes on and says, In the very same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies. They reject authority and slander celestial beings. It's kind of a unique phrase. In other words, these people live in a dream world. They believe the devil's lie. What was the original lie to Eve? Hey, you're going to be like God. You eat this fruit, you'll be just like God. And what that means is people design a God, and we talked about this, they design a God that will agree with everything that they believe. If you ask someone on the street what they think God is like, they will tell you that that their God will believe everything that they believe. If you believe that this is gray or this is blue, they're going to say, you know what? I think my God is going to believe that's blue too. And my God is going to believe that my lifestyle is okay. I'm not perfect but I know that my God is going to let me, let me go. We have an, how many have heard this? We have an, me and God have an arrangement. Yeah. That's because they've created their own God. They make up some fictitious 
make-believe God. And everyone's idea of God is just as valid as everybody else's idea of God. Except Christians. If I ask three people what their idea of God was and they all give me three different responses, each one will say, well, that could be true. And that could be true. What we said before, well, that's, that's true for you. Not true for me. Well, you can't have true not applying to everything. And by creating their own little God, they are rejecting the authority of God and his word. And he goes on, he says, to slander celestial beings. Now, it doesn't really go into commentary, and I've probably read that a thousand times and not thinking much about it. It doesn't go into detail, but some commentators believe it's when people deny the power of the good angels and the role in their lives, and they deny the power of the fallen angels and the role that they have in their lives. The New Living Translation says they scoff at the power of the glorious ones. And the New American Standard says they revile angelic maj- uh, majesties. In other words, they don't realize the power that the enemy has in this world. They don't believe in the demonic works in this world. Ephesians 2.2 says, You used to live just like the rest of the world, full of sin, obeying Satan, who is the mighty prince of the power of the air. He is a spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to believe God or obey God. They don't believe that there's demonic works. They don't believe in the devil. They don't believe in all these things that are opposing them, keeping them from God. And he gives an example in verse 9. He says, even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, again, that's something we don't know anything about this dispute but Jude saying that during the dispute Michael the archangel arguably the most powerful angel didn't even accuse the devil he didn't come at the devil in his own power he said the Lord rebuke you even Michael had respect for the power of fallen angels how many know the devil is a powerful enemy and you cannot go against him by yourself we don't flippantly argue with him or confront him ourselves without the Lord's anointing you try to battle the devil on your own you're going to lose 1 Peter 5 8 says be alert and self-controlled your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour false teachers do not have the proper respect for angelic power and authority. They, the devil has authority here. I mean, he has some authority to do things. He can wreak havoc. God has given him that authority. People who teach falsely do not believe that. They don't believe in the angels, the good angels. They don't believe in the demonic angels. And they showcase their arrogance over the devil. If they do believe in the devil, well, he doesn't have any power. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Well, you better be prayed up and steeped in God's word before you go looking for the devil. Jude 10 says, Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and what things they do understand by instinct like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy them. When they're preaching and they're talking about these things, they really don't have any idea of what they're talking about. 
And the very action that they're doing, the, what they're saying and what they're teaching is what is going to get them destroyed. Back in Acts 19, verse 13, you probably know the story. It says, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. So they weren't believers, but they were saying, hey, this guy is preaching it, so I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to do what he's doing. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know about and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all, one guy over all these seven guys. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So these guys who thought they could overcome this, you know, I'm going to do what Peter's doing. I'm not going to need any power. I'll just, I'll just invoke the name of Jesus like they're doing, and I'm going to win. Well, obviously weren't believers. Obviously didn't have the anointing and the power of Christ, and they got whooped. <laughs> Jude 11 says, how terrible it will be for them. For they follow the examples of Cain, who killed his brother. Like Batham, they will do anything for money, and like Korah, they will perish because of their rebellion. So here's another three, a little triad that uh, Jude puts together. Three, t- three examples from the Old Testament that emphasize the coming judgment on those who don't believe and who pervert God's word. Now, we like to see this right away, but it's not going to happen right away. But the first one is Cain. And this is what we talked about. This is the religion of his own making. Cain just put together what he thought was right. He thought he could just live right. He can come to God on his own terms. And ultimately, when God rejected him because he tried to do it himself, tried to make it up, make his own God up, that led to hatred and murder. So he hated his brother because his brother was accepted and he wasn't and he wound up killing his brother. People who make up their own God wind up hating those who follow the real God. John 16, 2 says, he's talking about people who are Christians against those who aren't. It says, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. That's what happens when people make up their own thing. He's saying that these false teachers, they're just like that. The second example he uses is Balaam. And this is an example of greedy religious leaders. They lead God's people into false religions and immorality, anything that they can do for more money and more prestige. There was a, there was a, a series on, I'm not sure what network, about... Uh, Scientology. It was on about a year ago. I don't know if you saw it. Leah Remini, the actress, was a Scientologist. She came out and was trying to expose what was going on. And the leaders, this is an example of that. The high guys in there, just anything for money and prestige, anything to bring them in. And they had more money than they tried to dodge. They had to build all these things just to keep their money. And it's easy because it's so attractive when you start getting financially rewarded for doing something that you think is for God, what happens? You become a slave to the money. Balaam was that guy. He was a prophet. But he got enticed by the money and by the prestige. And he tried to curse God's people. And we know the story. God didn't let him do it. He was using the spiritual 
to gain the material. Another word would be religious hucksters. Second Peter 2.15 says, They have left the straight, and wandered, the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who, lived the, who loved the wages of wickedness. He never thought there was any kind of consequence for that. Hey, I'm just doing, you know, I can use my position, I can get money. This is a good deal. The third example he gives is Korah. And this is an example of instant judgment. Korah and his group rebelled against Moses' authority. And what happened? God opened the earth, swallowed them all up, closed the earth up again, right? Moses got his authority from God. So in fact, Korah was rebelling against God. God picked Moses, and so when he rebelled against that, he's rebelling against God. When people claim and teach things that they know aren't true, they are rebelling against God's authority. Another phrasing that would be a, of that verse would be, in Korah, and like Korah, they will perish because of their rebellion. Now, the New American Standard says it this way, perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, it's a past tense. In other words, they have already been judged just like Korah has been. They're already judged, and their doom is already settled. They were judged back at that moment for the same thing that they're doing now. So they're already judged. That's done. Doom for them is settled. And the whole message of this book is twofold, contending for their faith, being able to know God's word enough to spot error, confront it to protect younger Christians from being drawn into it. Got VBS. You know, what did Jesus say? Suffer the little children, not, you know. Do not prevent them from coming to me because if, if you do, it'd be better if a millstone were hanging around your neck and you were drowned. As parents, what do we do? We constantly guard what our small kids eat, watch, do right and especially who they interact with who were we talking to yesterday we were at went up to a philly for my daughter amanda's son's birthday party yesterday and we were talking to some of the younger parents there and they have a son who's about uh, lincoln's age and they're out the store and you know a two or three year old boy you know you know right got to put a leash on him. I said, you're going to get one of those leashes like a, like a dog has. Except it's a backpack now with a leash on it, so it doesn't look quite as bad. And, and she said that, you know, one day he just ducked behind a, uh, a clothing rack. Couldn't find him. Scared you to death, right? Scare you to death. And he's, he's back there laughing because he's hiding. But the parents are scared. And why? You're, you're protecting him from all the weirdos and freaks that are out there. You don't know who's going to do what, and you're guarding him constantly. That's the, the whole gist of Jude's book. You need to guard the people that are in your flock. You need to guard the people that are listening to this stuff. Guard them so nothing, nobody's able to take them away. Put that, put that backpack leash on them with God's word, and don't ever let them go anywhere. Our job as parents is to protect them. I, what happened to Giant the other day? Did you guys read the article? Some guy in Giant tried to attack this girl in Giant in the day. And 
they caught him. And this was not a kid. This was a, an older, a full-grown adult. That's what the enemy is want to do. He wants to draw you, regardless of your age or your maturity, he wants to draw you away. And the Bible says he's only going to kill, steal, and destroy you. And that's why you, we all need to be protected by God's word. Jude becomes the parent, like we're the parent. He becomes the parent for the church he's writing to. And the second thing I think this book is, it's to help us get a sense of urgency for those around us who don't know. Why? Because people, there are people that are getting drawn into this false teaching. And the Bible, or I think the Bible teaches that everybody worships something. You worship yourself, you worship your job, you worship money, but everybody has something that they have to worship. And as people are wanting something to fill that void. And if you're not careful, you can get sucked into anything that's out there that will fill that void. Astrology. There's, there's, when I used to live in Florida, there was an organization called the Witches of Delray. Go figure. And they have members. And they, they're on Facebook. They, you know, they get sucked in because they want something. And if we're not out there teaching the truth, the Bible says they're going to get sucked into something that's not true. They're searching. They need answers about life, maybe. They need answers about a situation they're going through. Maybe they're in struggling and their hardship. They need the truth. But they're going to want to listen to something that tells them what they want to hear. I was driving down the street the other day and saw the Mormons out going door to door on Carlisle. There's a daily occurrence. We need to reach them. We need to be able to tell them what God tells them. A lot of people fall into these things because it sounds good. And it kind of jives with what they want to believe about God. And if we don't teach them the truth first, it's a lot harder to talk them out of a lie. And I think people who don't believe in God are easier to witness to than those who really have a fake, a false belief. Because that's, that's what they believe. You talk to someone who's maybe grown up in a different church or different religion, and you try to tell them that everything they've learned over the past however many years is wrong. And you're not going to get a lot of, hey, that sounds good. We have to reach them with the truth first. Because judgment awaits both the teachers and those who follow them. And we might be held accountable for those we don't reach when we have the opportunity to do that. VBS starts tonight, in case you weren't aware. So what we're going to do, we're going to close the service. I mentioned earlier, I need everybody praying all week for VBS. Pray for the weather, pray for the kids that come, pray that there's no excuses that come up. 
You know, there's a lot of, the enemy will throw all kinds of things in your path to keep you from coming. So we're going to pray against all of that. But we're going to close. I'm going to have everyone come up front. We're going to pray specifically for VBS and that God is able to really reach these kids and their families. How many of you do things because your kids want to do them? My kid wants to play baseball, so I'm going to take him to a baseball game. My kid wants to be involved in the play at school. My kid wants to be involved in whatever. So I will sacrifice and I will take him to those games. Well, if your kid wants to be in church, guess what's going to happen? You're going to bring your kid to church. And you're going to let him enjoy it. And you know what? The adults are going to hear the gospel while their kids are enjoying church downstairs. So when the Bible says they so-and-so got saved and their household... That's why we're praying for the VBS. That their, their five-year-old or their six-year-old got saved and their household. Because we want the kids to draw the parents in because they need Christ. They need Jesus. And we have, one, we have four days of just this event. And we want to be able to pack this place out and we want God to do his work. It's, it's great that we're doing all this stuff and it's great decorations. But unless the anointing's here, unless the power of God's here, it's nothing. So we need people praying. We need the anointing of God. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to have you all come up and we're just going to agree together in a, in a line or in a circle. And we're going to pray for VBS. And we're going to pray that when we bring these kids in that they're open to the truth. Not, yeah, we want them to come to church. We want them to get saved more than we want them to come to church. If they come here, that's awesome. But more importantly, that they come to know Christ. Because we're not going to be judged on whether they came to our church. We're going to be judged on whether they got saved or not. The rest is just a bonus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, Lord. Your word is our anchor. We built our life on your word. Your word carries us through the storm your word helps us in every situation because we know your word is true and Lord, we pray that everything we do here is under your anointing that the word of God is the truth that we preach the truth that we teach nothing of our own opinion Lord nothing of what we think but everything by your word and Lord I pray for VBS as it starts tonight I pray that you would draw every child in tonight fill this place to, to capacity Lord with young people who need Jesus. I pray that they would find encouragement and love here, that they would be introduced to the gospel of Christ, and even at their young age, Lord, they would come to know you, and that they would pray to receive you, and then, Lord, they would grow in their knowledge of you. And, Lord, we pray that you would use each one of us, whatever position we're in working VBS, I pray that, God, you would give us the anointing and power of God. Lord, we, we need your presence. We need the Spirit of God to draw these kids. We need the Spirit of God to draw the parents that are here so that, Lord, they come to know you. Let it matter eternally in their life, not just a couple of days of fun, but eat for eternity. Let it matter what we do here. And I pray that, God, we have great weather. Do not let the weather hinder what you want to accomplish, Lord. We know that you're able to control everything. You calm the seas. You calm the storm. You stop the sun. You can do it, Lord. 
And I pray that you would give us excellent weather. I pray that nothing would keep either the team or the visitors from coming, Lord. Let everyone be healthy and everyone not have any kind of sickness or any kind of interruption, Lord. But I pray that you give everyone a free schedule this week. I pray for all the kids that were invited. I pray that everyone comes, that no one gets sick. Nothing hinders them from coming to hear the gospel. We pray they would come every night. And whether they don't receive it the first night, they might receive it the second or the third or the fourth. But God, you bring them in every time. So they keep hearing the word. They keep hearing the love of Christ. They keep hearing where they need to be saved. Bring them in, Lord. And well, we need your anointing upon every situation. From the people that register all the way through the, the salvation prayer, Lord, we need your anointing. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to be here. We pray that you would anoint all those who teach. Anoint those who are watching the kids or doing the lessons and the crafts. We pray your blessing upon them. Let everything go smoothly and in order. Let them have fun and let them, let them be crazy but not chaotic. We want them to see an organization, Lord, a fun organization for the kids so that when the parents come in, they see the, the incitement, the joy that the children have in their lives, not only from the activities, Lord, but from knowing that, that God loves them, that God loves them, has a plan for their life. Lord, I just pray for your blessing upon all these four nights, Lord, and beyond, so that when these, these kids come, Lord, and their parents come, that they receive, and then they come back to be disciples. Lord, we don't want to make converts. We want to make disciples. We want to teach them. We want to train them in the words of, and the way of Christ so that they're able to stand against the world. They're able to make right decisions as they grow up, Lord, that all their choices from the young age all the way up to adults are directed by your spirit. Lord, your word says you train them up young. When they're old, they won't depart from it. Lord, help us to do all that we can so we can train them in the things of God. And let them remember fondly 20, 30 years from now what they experienced in this one week of VBS. Let it be the time that changes their life. Let it be a time that changes their family's life. Lord, this is your church, your church, Lord. And we just pray your blessing upon it. We anoint Dustin and Jamie as they lead it and Judy as she teaches and all those who do crafts and, and you know, crowd control, everything that we have going on. We, we just need your spirit to direct it. We pray for those who are sick right now, they're struggling. I pray that God, you would heal them in the name of Jesus. We prayed for that this morning. We believe, we sang about their healing in the blood. And we believe that God, you're gonna heal those who are sick, not keep them from here. But Lord, you'll heal their bodies in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for giving us this, this awesome responsibility, Lord. And it is a responsibility. We're reaching out to those with the gospel of Christ with the truth. We want to minister the truth to them, Lord. So we pray that everything we do is truthful. Everything is scriptural, Lord. No deviation, no opinion, but God's straight truth. So Lord, I commit this week of VBS to you. I commit all those who are working. I commit those who are attending, their families, everyone, Lord. I commit them to you. And you just have your way, Lord. And let there be tremendous testimonies about the power of God. No glory to us, Lord. Nothing that we've done. We want the glory to go to you, Jesus, for what you accomplished through us. So, Father, we commit it to you and we trust you with it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 Let's give the Lord a praise offering this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right, you're excited? All right. Starts tonight. Let's do it.